Hello everyone, my name is Adam, and welcome into this week's trip down the homeward path. Before we get into things, I've got a few questions. Are you a fan of Magic the Gathering? Presumably so, since you're here listening to a podcast about it, but, you know, what do I know? But is there something else in your life that takes precedence? Keeps you away from your magical aspirations? A job, a career, partner, spouse, children, any and all of the above. Listen, I'm right there with you. I have a wonderful wife, three children, full-time job, and a lot of extracurricular commitments that make it really difficult to devote the amount of time, finance, and energy that high-level competitive magic normally takes. But in spite of that, are you, like me, relentlessly seeking improvement every time you get a chance to play? If that sounds like something you're interested in, then I suggest you hop in and buckle up. Now let's go for a ride. But it's a good time to remind you that we are brought to you by the following sponsors. PureMTGO.com is one of the largest depositories of magic content on the web. They've got a little bit of something for absolutely everyone. And I do mean everyone. So head over there, check out their collection of stuff. While you're at it, I understand that the arena grind can feel like a bit of a slog, especially if, like me, you're traditionally at least a free-to-play player. But thanks to our sponsor at Grey Viking Games, you don't have to wander the wilderness in search of your glory on your own. You can head over there and find access to pre-release codes, single-pack codes, cosmetics, promo packs, uh, card sleeves, any and all of the above. So go and find your glory at GreyVikingGames.com. And if you want to support this show in a much more direct fashion, don't forget to head over to Patreon.com slash HomewardPathMTG. This show is always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, go over become a patron, and take advantage of your rewards. And if you've got questions, comments, or concerns about the show, or you just want to talk, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain, like the country. Yes, I got picked on about that for most of my life. And you can join the conversation in the Facebook group, The Homeward Pathfinders. So head over, check all that stuff out while you continue to listen on the Homeward Path. So it's been a rough couple of weeks, but it's important to get everything together and move on. I'm sorry this episode took so long to get going, but let's dive in to Budget Spotlight. This week, Budget Spotlight for Teamer Week, the last of the color series and we're going to start off with green, which is the core color of the clan. And our green card, our green budget card of the week is Lovestruck Beast. Now, I mean, if you've played standard for the last two years, you know exactly what this card is. You have played against it a thousand times, right? 
Uh, it's adventure half is heart's desire for green. Create a one-one human. Spell half or creature half is two and a green five-five. Can't attack unless you control a one-one. So, I mean, y'all didn't really think I'd leave off the second most efficient creature I've ever gone to battle with, did you? For reference, the first most efficient creature I've ever gone to battle with is still Tarmogoyf, because two mana. Efficiency aside, though, this thing has a synergy with a lot of pieces thanks to that efficiency, which sounds weird to say, I know, but it gets better. You've got cards like Great Henge, where it comes down on turn three, and you can potentially Great Henge on turn four. You've got the synergy with Embercleave, where because it's so large, it can represent a massive chunk of their life total in one swing. Synergy with Pelt Collector, where it can get you to 5-5 five five on Pelt Collector. Synergy with Stubborn Denial, where it's a one-mana negate. Synergy with Fight Spells, where even if you're not able to attack, something like Decisive Denial, you can just punch their thing and kill it. You can kill their Bone Crusher. You can kill their Robber the Rich. You can trade it for their Annex or just kill their Annex depending on what their board state looks like. So all around, Lovestruck Beast is just like the perfect high efficiency creature for standard. And you can do a whole lot worse than the best, most, the most efficient creature in standard, the second most efficient creature I've ever played for 50 cents. That is 50 cents for that. Three mana, five, five. Minor drawback. Moving on. As with all the clans, we move from the core color to its ally. Ally color is red, and our card of the week for red is Goblin Rabblemaster. Now, I have not gotten a chance to do this one in a long time. Uh, Goblin Rabblemaster is two and a red. I can't remember how big. Let's pull it up. I'm actually at home today recording this one, as opposed to being on the road, so we can do that sort of thing. Uh, but Rabblemaster, in particular, is kind of falls into that same allegory that we talked about last week of Relic Robber, where it's a value threat. And in the case of Rabblemaster, this thing's value damage adds up real quick. So, two and a red buys you... Let's get the thing pulled up. A 2-2 creature, Goblin Warrior. Other goblins you control attack each combat if able. At the beginning of combat on your turn, create a 1-1 red goblin token with haste. And whenever Rabble Master attacks, it gets plus 1, plus 0 for each other attacking goblin. So it's part, like, weird Legion war boss, part goblin pile driver, all awesome. In conjunction with Legion war boss, this thing is obnoxious. This is the premier threat in the value damage three-drop slot. This thing represents a three-turn clock from the moment of resolution by itself because it comes down, attacks them for one. Makes another token on, on the following turn, attacks for one, two, three, four, five, six. Makes another token the next turn, attacks for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's 15, 16 damage. They're probably dead. Jumpstart finally made this thing affordable, and I will tell you just how affordable. I vividly remember looking for this thing for Pioneer when it first was announced as a format, and this card being 
15 20 a copy and i just like i can't do that i can't i can't do it and it's absolutely deadly out of the sideboard of decks that are light on creatures in game ones and to you know opponent doesn't think they need removal they board a bunch out you board into goblin rabble master and again Three to four turn clock, depending on their life total, by itself, and your opponent boarded out removal. So, premier threat at the value damage slot, it's finally affordable, and it's absolutely deadly out of the sideboard of otherwise reactive or creature light or creature free decks. And you can do a whole lot worse than that for $5 a copy. Uh, next on the list is our blue card. Because you know we talked about we talked about green, we talked about red. We got to get the last one in there. And our blue card of the week is Ascendant Spirit, and this is a new one. It's from Caldheim. It's a single blue mana for a one-one snow creature spirit, and snow creature matters way less than the spirit typing and the other abilities. Ability number one is Snow Snow, so any, it's generic mana, but it has to come from a snow source, for those of you who don't know what that means. It can be any color of mana, it just has to come from a snow source, so either a snow-covered land, a snow land, or a snow creature that taps for mana normally. Ascendant, it, for, for Snow Snow, it becomes a spirit warrior with base power and toughness 2-3. For Snow Snow Snow... If it's a warrior, put a flying counter on it, and it becomes a spirit warrior angel with base power and toughness 4-4. Four, four. And snow, 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 if it's an angel, put two plus one plus one counters on it, and it gains whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card. Now, it gets some serious... It's one of the more intriguing threats in recent memory. It evokes major comparisons to Figure of Destiny, which saw a ton of play during its time in Standard. Uh, as a one-drop that could grow. Notable for this one compared to Figure Destiny is the first ability makes it a 2-3. Meaning, if you resolve the first ability before your opponent gets to cast Stomp, Stomp won't kill it. In other words, if you're on the play, you jam it, they go Fireblade Charger, or you just land, pump, it's a 2-3 attack. You know, and it's, well, I guess you probably wouldn't attack into that, but whatever. 2-3 means it, it it blocks their Robber of the Rich, it blocks Fireblade Charger and survives, uh, blocks and kills Fervent Champion. It's, like, really good against all the red deck threats. And it's a threat in and of itself. There's also the fact that it has spirit typing for older formats, which is to say using it in conjunction with cards like Rattle Chains, Supreme Phantom, which makes it bigger. Or even if you're wild and crazy, you can use it in conjunction with cards that give it creature types. You know, uh, giving it all creature types allows you to skip directly to the last ability and just keep putting counters on it. One of the knocks on Figure of Destiny was once you sunk all your mana into it and made it big, there wasn't anything else to do with it anymore. But with this, once you make it big, you can just keep making it bigger. You won't get to draw additional cards every time it hits. 
Like, you'll only get the, whenever this creature deals damage, draw a card once. It doesn't stack up in multiples, if I'm not mistaken. Let's double check that. Oh, it will. Never mind. Each time the last ability resolves while it's an angel, we'll give Ascendant two more spirit, two more plus one plus one encounters. Cause it to gain another instance of the triggered ability. Interesting. So yeah, every time it deals damage, you'll draw a card for each time that you've done that. So that's really neat. I was mistaken. And then you can tack on something like a Curious Obsession or something like a Staggering Insight if you're playing Standard. Just an all-around interesting, intriguing, flexible card that is low to the ground against control decks and can get very big very quickly against aggro. And I don't know how much more you want from your threat for a dollar. And last but not least, we have Genesis Ultimatum. And uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you know what this thing does. But we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about it anyway. Uh, Genesis Ultimatum is green, green, blue, 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 red, red for a sorcery. Again, following the trend of seven mana, very specific to the color combination, do an absurdly powerful thing on a sorcery. It's kind of what these cards do unless you're exactly Clarion Ultimatum. But uh, Genesis Ultimatum, you look at the top five cards of your library, put any number of permanents from among them onto the battlefield and the rest into your hand. Exile Genesis Ultimatum. The saving grace for this thing is the fact that it exiles itself, which is weird to say because I would obviously love to use it more and more and more, be able to rebuy it from the graveyard or cast it from the graveyard with obnoxious other cards. But like the fact that it exiles it after resolution is what keeps this thing balanced. But... Y'all remember how good Collected Company is, right? Pay three more mana, you get five cards into play, or you get you get five cards, but you get all the permanents instead of six cards and only two creatures. And the best way I can describe how powerful Genesis Ultimatum is is by the reaction my wife had witnessing this card resolve for the first time. I was playing the, the Teamer Ramp list with Terror of the Peaks, and I resolved Genesis Ultimatum, revealed Double Terror Beanstalk Giant and two lands and put everything into play, and she looked at the board and she says, wait, you get all of them? That's, that's the correct reaction to have upon resolving that card. Wait, I get all of this. Everything. I just get it. Oh. Well, that's neat. So like in six, it's already really good in 60 card formats and it's even more powerful in Commander where you've got access to more broken permanents. It's just really, really good. Even if it just hits five lands, I'm sure your deck's doing something with them. If you copy it, it's obnoxious. If you uh, bounce it back to your hand in response to resolution, like you copy it and then bounce it. Like a Narset's Reversal or something along those lines. Narset's Reversal, or, uh, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it, the, like a dual cast, and then when you cast it, you remand it back to your hand, 
whatever, right? It's just so good. It's just so good. There are plenty of ways to make an already busted card even more busted when you go into older formats. So that's going to wrap up Budget Spotlight for this week. Genesis Ultimatum can be picked up for the low, low price of $2. Now, obviously, it comes with the caveat of having to get unfair things to do with it, but like, even if you're just flooping a bunch of creatures into play and have one Terror of the Peaks, they probably die. Or if you have Impact Tremors and multiple token generators off of your Genesis Ultimatum in Commander. If you hit, like, Impact Tremors, Perforos, Avenger of Zendikar, everybody dies. Like, it's so, so good. So moving on, we're going to go into our Brew of the Week, and this is one I've wanted to do for a little while. This is, uh, uh, I'm going to be perfectly candid and honest. I've, I've mentioned the combo a few times. I have not talked about the deck. This is the Infinite Mutate deck. It is team or colors. I am never, ever, ever casting Vadrock for Jeskai mana. We're always mutating. From its core concept, the basis of the deck is it's the latest attempt at the, quote, teamer parasitic mechanic plus unfair thing archetype. The parasitic mechanic being mutate, seeking to generate as many triggers as possible to gain all the value. Uh, triggers that you want to maximize being cards like Dreamtail Heron to draw cards, uh, Migratory Greathorn to make land drops, to get lands out of your deck. Uh, Cloud Piercer, if you want to play it, to give you uh, rummage effects and the ability to discard a card and draw a card. Polywog Symbian, if that's something you want to play, to draw a card then discard a card. Uh, Auspicious Starix, the ability to floop cards from the top of your deck into play. Uh, every permanent you hit when you floop with Auspicious Starix will just hit the battlefield. You, you flip until you hit enough permanents to equal the number of times the creature's mutated, and then you just get all of them. That's kind of obnoxious, right? The unfair element, in spite of all the rest of those cards being as powerful as they are, the real unfair element is the combo of Vadrock and Open the Omen Pass, which can conceivably allow you to cast slash mutate every creature you draw, potentially as early as turn two, off of Gilded Goose. This is in standard, mind you. You can potentially just make a giant, massive creature that gives you all the mutate triggers, potentially floops a bunch of stuff out of your deck into play, and just like build the unbreakable board, kind of play Yu-Gi-Oh! while your opponent's playing Magic on turn two. Have I done it yet? No. Got real close. Several times. It's really cool. Customization is, because of the deck's overall approach, the main customization avenue it has is determining which non-humans to play that you want to mutate onto. Because mutate creatures need non-human targets. Now, the, the easiest, the most linear approach is to play all the, like, the mutate payoff-specific cards, cards like Essence Symbiont, cards like Polywog Symbiont, uh, mysterious Egg, and just dare the opponent to have enough removal to do anything about it. Be and just 
hey, I'm a really good mutate deck, and I also have this unfair payoff at the top. Uh, we are all the way in on this plan. This is how we're going to kill you. And I played that one for a while, and it won a lot of games that didn't have any business winning. But it's not my favorite variant of the deck, and I'm going to explain why. The other approach is to play a landfall sub-theme. And count on the likes of Brushfire Elemental, Akum Hellhound, Kazandu Mammoth, and Scoot Swarm to carry a lot of weight. Let me explain why I like this variant better. This version of the deck allows you to win games where your mutate stuff doesn't come together properly. Where you can just turn one goose, turn two Brushfire Land, attack for three, turn three... Uh, Hellhound, or turn three, mutate Great Horn, get a land, play a land, attack for, what, seven, put your opponent on a clock, or mutate the Great Horn onto the goose so that you get the land, play your extra land drop, and your Brushfire attacks for five, your Great Horn attacks for three. Like, you attack for three, you attack for eight, they're at nine. Uh, peeling a mutate creature off the top of the deck just probably gets you there. It's just ridiculous. The Kazandu Mammoths also serve as additional lands if the thing is rolling. Like, there were several games I won where I didn't do anything particularly unfair with the mutate cards. We just played some mutate cards that just so happened to speed us toward a win. But by and large, this is a deck that you want to play when you know the format is not centered around a ton of spot removal. In particular, the Landfall variant. Like, the Landfall variant is very good if your opponent is worried about doing their own thing. If you're seeing a lot of the adventure mid-range decks that are not going to respect something like an Akum Hellhound or Brushfire Elemental until it's already chipped in for some damage, uh, Kazandu Mammoth is really nice because it lives through Stomp to mutate onto. And then you have the, the capacity to like half combo where you mutate the cards in your hand even if you don't have one of the draw effects. So you can Brushfire Elemental on two. Uh, on three, you can open the Omen Paths, Vagerok, open the Omen Paths, Migratory Great Horn, open the Omen Paths, Dreamtail Heron, draw, and you still probably attack for a lot of damage. Even if you just draw lands. Because you will get to... Your, your land drop will trigger Brush Fire to get plus two, plus two. Your Mutate of Vagerok will make it a 3-3, so it'll be a 5-5. Cast Omen Pass again. Mutate Great Horn. That'll make it a... a <sighs> that'll make it a 5-6. Go get your land. That makes it a 7-8. Mutate Heron. Draw a card. That makes it a 9-10. Punch him in the face. <laughs> like, it's so... It, it has surprised me how effective this deck can be. And from an Outlook perspective, 
With standard currently defined by a host of effective spot removal, this concept is difficult to justify. But again, if we ever get back to a standard format where players are more interested in going over the top of each other than they are interacting with their opponent, the more we see decks like Mono White, the more we see decks like the Mardu Sacrifice decks, the better this style of play is going to be. Because again... If you mutate a Great Horn over the top of your, your landfall creatures, or even your symbionts, it now costs too much mana to take with Claim the Firstborn. It's now got too much toughness to kill with Stomp. Same goes for Dreamtail Heron, same goes for Vadrock, same goes for any of the other mutate cards we're playing. So... It's got some legs, even if they're kind of misshapen and odd and a little bit unstable. It's, it's got some legs. It's been surprising how effective the deck can be. So moving on to our main topic, I called the episode, at last, a formidable foe. And somebody's going to find that funny, I promise. So who are the Teamer Frontier? It's a clan of Tarkir, admirers of the dragon's aspect of savagery. The teamer are base green, exploring their relation to their ally color red and enemy color blue. They're a band of hardy warriors and shamans living in the harsh arctic terrain of Tarkir. Combat is encouraged from early in life. Life revolves around family, hunting, and survival, very much like the Abzan if we're being honest. More so than the Abzan, I would argue. Their original mechanic, Ferocious, does a fantastic job of demonstrating their reverence for strength and gave us two of the most powerful spells I've ever wielded. Uh, those two spells being Teamer Battle Rage and Stubborn Denial. Uh, Teamer Battle Rage ends games. Stubborn Denial sometimes keeps your opponent from getting back into them. Uh, Ferocious being the mechanic that you got a bonus on spells if you control the creature with power four or greater. And we've seen that adapted in more recent times without the keyword, but it's still it's still ferocious. Nessian Horn Beetle in standard is a ferocious creature. Let's not kid ourselves. Their new timeline mechanic, Formidable, demonstrates the power of a pack rather than the power of one creature, rather than revering the strength of one one source. Formidable wants your creatures to total power 8 or greater. And it's still home to one of the most interesting win conditions in Commander. The card being Shaman of the Forgotten Ways, I believe it is. I can't, I can't remember the name of the card exactly. But it is the legal biorhythm in Commander. The ability to sacrifice it and set each player's life total to the power of the creatures they control. That's pretty good. Outside of Tarkir, Teamer tends to be home to parasitic mechanics like energy, mutate, snow, adventure, gates, spell slinger, mechanics that want you to play a lot of a certain type of card. but also usually has the card quality to play traditional mid-range, tempo, ramp, or even control. Basically, there's not really anything Teamer can't do. Except disrupt the hand, but that's beside the point. 
The line between good and oppressive with Teamer tends to be razor thin and largely depends on other colors keeping them in check and the format constraints around them. So when it comes to my competitive history with Teamer, the first deck I ever got to play against in what was called back then in 2006, they called it Rug, Sea Stompy. Sea Stompy combined the aggressive early game of the Gruel Aggro deck, popularized by one Mark Herberholz, and the nickname Heasy Street from back in the day. You combined the early game of the Gruel deck, cards like uh, Kurt Ape, uh, Scab Clan Berserker, not Scab, Scab Clan Mauler, uh, Moldervine Cloak, all the things you were normally playing within the, the Gruel deck with tempo elements like Remand and Plax Manta to, to, to disrupt key turns and maintain pressure. Remand was critical against cards like Wrath of God that would keep your creature it would keep your creatures on the table. Plax Manta was better against spot removal. If an opponent tapped out for Mortify and you flashed in an additional creature and countered their spell by giving your creature Shroud, it was a good time. Uh, Trigon Predator was also an all-star. Trigon Predator being a 2-3 for one, a blue, and a green. Every time it dealt damage, you would destroy an artifact or enchantment in opponent control. It was the best way to win the ubiquitous Umizawa's GTA fights. And if I butchered that name, I'm sorry. But it was, it was a card we saw a lot during that era. Yeah, imagine playing in a standard format where GTA was legal and there were a lot of good flying creatures, and you can pretty well imagine how important it was to have ways to win those battles. Somehow creature decks were still good. I don't understand it either. Uh, that was standard 2006. It only lasted really that summer, and then like the format sped up again with Time Spiral. Became a fundamental turn four, and a deck like Sea Stompy was just a little bit too slow. So moving on, we have Rug Scapeshift from Extended and Modern. It was originally a traditional combo control deck, playing a combination of counterspells, removal, ramp, and card draw, until it could shift up into a lethal Valakut. This deck was sweet. The original version was just playing like 12 shocklands. You played a bunch of you played all the mountain shocklands you could jam in there in your colors. And then beyond that, you were largely just a green-red deck. But early iterations of this deck largely just didn't play creatures, or if they did, it was something like Sakura Tribe Alder that could sacrifice to go get you lands. Or uh Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I'm not gonna keep trying to do that. It eventually adopted Primeval Titan and then just kind of phased blue cards out. It decided that it was way easier to just jam Primeval Titan on turn three and let the opponent figure it out than trying to make sure they couldn't. Instead of trying to make sure the opponent couldn't do anything about it, you just do the most powerful thing you can and it'll probably get you there. That brings us to one of the most fun decks, one of the decks I've had the most fun playing in my time playing Magic, period. Teamer Energy from 2017 standard until, like, all the good cards got banned. 
the core of a tune with Aether, Rogue Refiner, Harness Lightning, and Whirler Virtuoso powered several iterations. At first, it was Team or Marvel. You know, it was it was Green Red Marvel at first. They adopted Blue after they banned Emrakul. But then they gave us Felidar Guardian, and you could just play an infinite combo in Standard, and Felidar Guardian was the only white card you needed. So it became four-color copycat. Within that same era of the format, one of the best ways to counteract the copycat deck was Dynavolt Tower. So you took the core of a tune with Aether Harness Lightning, uh, Rogue Refiner, Warlord Virtuoso, and you played it with Dynavolt Tower and a bunch of instants and sorceries and Torrential Gear Hulk, and you played a control deck. And you were able to compete along that axis because you could threaten to annihilate the Sahili in response to the Philidar Guardian trigger if the opponent didn't have an out. And it gave you sort of legs against the whole field. Uh, after the banning of Felidar Guardian, Marvel became the go-to unfair thing because it turns out playing casting Ulamog from your deck on turn four was really strong. Who knew? I mean, and then around it, you still had a tune, Refiner, Harness Lightning, and Whirler Virtuoso. <laughs> So if they kept your your Marvel at bay and they kept you from doing any sort of obnoxious thing, you could still just stockpile energy early in the game with cards like Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot, Rogue Refiner, uh, cheap moding your Harness Lightnings to save energy where you could, and then you could just play a Whirler, make a bunch of tokens, and beat them down. And then eventually, once they banned Aetherworks Marvel, we just had the core, and then figured out that you could play uh, Long Tusk Cub as basically a two-mana 5-5 five five if it was supported by those cards. And then instead of playing unfair, obnoxious combo elements at the top of the curve, we just played Glorybringer and sometimes sideboarded into Torrential Gear Hulk and beat our opponents to death. And I would like to take my own little victory lap of credit for doing that before it was cool. Uh, handing a version of the deck off to my friend Jared, who played it at our Devastation game day and ended up winning the thing because my version of Teamer Energy was bigger than everybody else's. I was playing main deck Olvenwald Hydra, which was just so stinking massive, it did a really good job of making sure the opponents couldn't do much. Uh, and to help support it, we played additional mana creatures in cutting Long Tusk Cub to the sideboard. We played Cub in the board for control decks, but we uh, we played additional mana creatures in Naga Vitalist in the main deck in order to help facilitate Ulvenwald Hydra or just jam a turn four Glorybringer. You know, we, we could just jam a turn four Glorybringer or a turn four Hydra down their throat and make them have it. But all of those versions of the deck were viable. And it would have continued to be viable, but they banned a tune with Aether and Rogue Refiner, and the deck just completely fell apart. The best energy cards got adopted by other decks, cards like Harness Lightning, cards like Went Sleeve Siphoner and Whirler Virtuoso. But none of them were quite the, like, 
I can do a little bit of everything shell that the energy mid-range deck was. And then more recently, Teamer Reclamation from 2019 to 2020 standard. Now this is a special one for me. It took the best parts of the Sultai mid-range deck, which were Growth Spiral, Hydroid Crisis, and uh, Nissa Who Shakes the World. Now, granted, this was a deck before uh, Nissa was printed, and it was one of the few Growth Spiral decks in standard at the time, which is what initially drew me to it, because Growth Spiral is really, really good. But when you take the best parts of an existing mid-range deck and then you combine them with an unfair mana engine and a combo enabler, you're going to get something pretty oppressive. And that's what happened with this deck. You started with, you started with Spiral and Crisis and Reclamation, Nexus of Fate, Expansion Explosion. Nexus of Fate got banned. Uh, we moved on. We ended up getting, you know, Nissa plus Crisis plus Growth Spiral was really good. It was one of the few decks that was capable of fighting the, the Oko piles because you didn't have a ton of creatures in your deck. And you could just kill them out of nowhere regardless of how many Elks they made. But then it ended up getting Uro, and that kind of vaulted it into the stratosphere once they took care of all the other stuff that uh, Companion, that, that Ikoria gave to Standard. It vaulted it into the stratosphere. It became far and away the best deck after, ban after the nerf to Companions and the banning of Fires of Invention and Agent of Treachery to the point that it was the only thing left to play. You played Tamer Reclamation or you played Four Color Reclamation to play the card that shut off the Reclamation Mirror into Fairy Time Raveler. And it was that dominant up until they banned Growth Spiral, Wilderness Reclamation, and... Yeah. That's <laughs> just ridiculous. So it, it went from kind of a janky combo deck that could play some good magic cards to far and away the best deck in standard and had to have cards banned out of it and got Wilderness Reclamation banned in every format that it's probably going to be great in other than Commander. And that brings us to today, most recent, Teamer Adventure. This is another value mechanic that ultimately only got knocked down a peg due to the power of like obnoxiously powerful single cards only to emerge as another powerful deck as a value mid-range deck a few weeks later so it started out as the lucky clover adventure deck you played lucky clover with edgewall innkeeper bone crusher giant brazen borrower love struck beast uh 15 card wish board for fey of wishes and you had like three flex slots in your deck. Cards like Escape to the Wilds were obnoxious. The, the combination of this, the Omnath deck, and Reclamation are the distinct reasons why Escape to the Wilds is banned. 
but it was a, it was a very very powerful like synergistic parasitic mechanic deck where you just wanted to play as many adventure cards as you could to the point where there for a while I was playing uh, Flaxen Intruder in my main deck so that I could jam it on turn one, kill their innkeeper, and attack and kill their clover on turn two. Or if I got my own clover down, it would be a seven mana make six two twos late in the game. But then came Uro, then came Omnath, and then Omnath got banned, and it would have very solidly been the best deck in standard again had Omnath been banned and Lucky Clover didn't go with it, so they took Lucky Clover with it. The way the deck is, the deck is still really, really good, even without obnoxious top-end synergies. It thrives by combining a two-for-one emphasis from its core mechanic, then expanding to add some kind of an unfair element. Like, you can win fair games with Teamer Adventures. Just like you can win fair games with Teamer Energy mid-range. But you've also got the looming, the pending threat of something obnoxious coming down and ruining your day. You've got Lucky Clover up until it was banned. You had Omnath up until it was banned. You have Genesis Ultimatum now threatening to flip a Terror of the Peaks and a Beanstalk Giant onto the board and just shoot you for 10 out of nowhere. You've got Luca. coming out more recently and being able to build your deck in such a way that you can play the adventure cards and a card like Llanowar Visionary, which I never thought I would be willing and happy to play. But I am. And you combine those cards with Luca, who will then turn any of your three mana creatures into Coma, which is going to annihilate just about everybody. Or just keep plussing to draw you creatures because you draw the creatures and as long as you as long as those cards are in exile and you control a Luca Planeswalker, you can cast them either half. It's kind of good. Like, and then plus your way up to an alt where all your love struck beasts deal five damage to their face. You know. You've got double love struck, bone crusher, two one ones left over. That's sixteen damage. They're probably dead. <laughs> and the the adventure mechanic, the adventure deck as it stands right now, is a testament to the power level of Eldraine, as well as just the overwhelming popularity of value decks among the player populace. Like, we really like getting more than we should out of our cards, don't we? We really, really do. So, at the end of the day, that's, that's really kind of the best way I can describe Teamer in a nutshell. It seems unassuming. It doesn't look obnoxious. Until you realize there's just not much better to do. And once you do that, things kind of flip on their head and you realize that you should have been playing that the whole time. And it's a testament to just the overwhelming power level of combining Simic, which as we've established on several occasions, every base Simic color pair is kind of obnoxious. 
Bant is kind of obnoxious. Sultai can be kind of obnoxious. Uh, Simic itself is rather obnoxious. And then Teemer. You know, we've gone through one, two, three archetypes and like 15 decks. 15 different iterations of decks that all saw ban list updates because of their ubiquity. And if that's not a testament to the overwhelming power level of Teamer, I don't know what is. So, you know, I guess I would say looking forward, if you're not sure what you want to play, see if there's a Teamer deck that's good, because it's probably good enough. And with that, that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we will be back either more than likely next week. Maybe with a guest. I don't know yet. <laughs> I got to talk to him. Got to see if we can make it happen. But we'll be back next week. And we're finally done with the color series so we can get back to talking about something that basically nobody cares about anymore. But I want to talk about it anyway. And that is the state of standard as it stands right now. Because I have not done an episode along those lines in a very long time. And I want to get back to doing sort of a current event series. So the next few episodes are going to be kind of checking in on the formats that I play and what's going on with them. So, and I've got a few this week. But if you've got questions, comments, concerns, you can send them to me on Twitter. At Homeward Path MTG, you can send them to me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can join the conversation in the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. If you're a patron, you get access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord for a dollar a month. You get your deck pushed up to the front of the Brew of the Week line in three dollar a month, and you get your very own episode topic. You help me write the episode you want to hear at five dollars a month. So, without further ado. I have to give credit where it's due before I do these. These came from Chef MTG on TikTok. And they are just mwah, chef's kiss. The first one said, uh, hey, why, why don't bat mages like black or red mana? It's because they're Rakdos intolerant. <laughs> and then the other one said, hey, I knew this, uh, this, this guy that was a soldier. He was a great warrior. And then one day he just decided he had enough and uh, invested into farming equipment and started living a more peaceful life. So I guess you could say he went from swords to plowshares. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm so glad to have found another person that, that enjoys this type of humor the same way I do. If you want to see more MTG Dad Joke content, I will eventually be doing some of them on TikTok myself. Um, at Homeward Path Gaming. Uh, right now, the main focus on Homeward Path Gaming is just kind of letting the listeners of the podcast get to know who I am away from magic, but we're still going to have plenty of magic-related humor on the way. But that's all I've got for this week, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll catch you next week. So with that in mind... Be safe, be kind, and keep relentlessly improving.
We'll catch you next week.